Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Not too long after the election and then the inauguration of Donald Trump as president, people started reporting on an anecdotal basis about their own stress. Uh, We decided to do a show in April about that phenomenon. And as you'll hear, we found as maybe the most extreme example, somebody whose stress probably connected to the election results and the current state of America, whose stress levels almost killed him. So the good news I'm going to tell you right now is that the person you're going to meet is still alive. He's fine. He had a big birthday uh, in July. I don't know what birthday it was, but for him, I think birthdays are going to be big birthdays for the rest of his life. So um, you're going to enjoy meeting him, and I just want to tell you the good news. He's fine. But it's also a good reason to take one thing away from this show if you take nothing else from it. Take care of yourself. I mean, it's just a good idea to take care of yourself, right? Gather with friends, do social things, get some exercise, whatever empties your mind out, whether it's music or swimming laps, do that stuff. Get away from all this stress. But right now, we're going to put you in the middle of all this stress. We're going to air this show again. I, also, because of everything that happened over the past weekend in Charlottesville, I think, once again, people are maybe starting to feel the blood pressure go up a little bit, the pulse start the race, maybe a little bit of more of a reflux problem than usual. So listen to this show and know at least that you're not alone. Tom Gadu is a local toy designer. I've known him for years, a little bit. I've met him a few times. We know each other on Facebook. He told me a story one day recently in a Starbucks on Route 44. He was in his backyard with his son, Remy, this past Thanksgiving weekend when suddenly he didn't feel well and he collapsed. So um, my son turned me over and saw that I was having a severe problem. I, I... glassy-eyed, wasn't looking at anything, and uh, luckily, right away, he started CPR uh, that he had learned in his high school health class, and uh, he had his phone with him, and he called 911. It turned out Tom was in what doctors call ventricular fibrillation, where the heart beats really fast and out of rhythm. Instead of pumping blood to the body, The heart kind of quivers, which means not enough blood is getting to the other vital organs in your body, like your brain. Uh, uh, The first responders came within a few minutes. Uh, I'm really indebted to them, uh, especially the Walbrecht family that lives two blocks away from me. And Rita Walbrecht came with a little more equipment to inflate some air. And, uh, and then her husband, Wally, came with the ambulance. And, and nevertheless, it was 20 minutes of CPR in the backyard before I had a reasonable heartbeat. The doctors put Tom in a coma for eight days to protect his brain from damage. Against all odds, he came out of that with only minor memory loss that is mostly resolved. So that's unheard of uh, in the medical communities. And... My doctors were all just completely shocked and stunned that 
I survived much less 100% healthy. Doctors don't always know what causes a heart to fibrillate, but Tom and his wife wonder if his stress about the election was an added burden on top of an already stressful life. Uh, yeah, I was uh, worried about uh, the possibility of Trump being elected, and um, um, yeah, I, she's definitely said that she thinks that stress was a big factor, and I think it was for me too. And I, I think I just kind of operate over the top of it. When you have a family and you have uh, you're self-employed in your job, and you gotta keep going and uh, work for your clients and find new business all the time, and and also as a as a designer and inventor, I'm also looking. Well, how can I invent my way out of this? And so it is uh, demanding and stressful and arrhythmic. Uh, as I found out. Yeah. One of the things Tom didn't remember was who won the election. Yeah. Um, my, my wife tells, you know, told me that Trump won, I guess, it was, uh, about 10 days after the accident. And I, I was just completely flabbergasted. I couldn't believe it. Uh, I had wiped out my memory really of about three or four months previous to the accident and um, so you know there were a couple people in the room and they thought it was pretty comical (laughs) but uh, yeah it it was a stunner. Tom is still bothered by the results of the election and how it's going to affect his life but none of that seems quite so important anymore. Um, I I definitely see the bigger picture uh, in that regard yeah um, I had this uh, eight or ten weeks that I saw as an opportunity to reinvent myself, mm. uh, and I reinvented myself the, basically the same, but it, it was an opportunity. Today, he's happy for his relationships. And, uh, and it's also been really wonderful to have uh, the support of the community that had, had been amazing. Uh, in supporting my wife, and it was a very stressful time for my wife and kids. Uh, and uh, I, uh, you know, how the community turned out was unbelievable. Uh, it's just amazing. Thank you all. <laughs> and, well, yeah. yeah, and it's good to see that you're up and running and here at Starbucks with us. So skating too, and ice skating. Yeah. <laughs> Tom Gaudu, thank you so much for visiting with us about this today. Thank you. All right. So, you know, what we did was a few months ago, um, partly as a result of an email we got from one of our guests today, was we got really interested in that whole question of how many stories like that are there? Well, there aren't any stories like that. The story uh, when we heard about Tom and the fact that uh, the election was a big stressor for him and then he had this heart episode and then he woke up and he didn't remember the election. He had to hear about it all over again. That was uh, a unique story. But we knew that there were other stories like this. And one reason that we knew about this, that there were other stories like this, of people who either got physically or psychologically sick as a result of the election, not just the results of the election too. I mean, you could have been a Trump supporter, but boy, you know, if you can't have a normal Thanksgiving or a normal conversation with one of your relatives, or if everything turns into a screaming fight, you're going to be under stress too, even if the person you backed won. But one reason we knew about this 
<laughs> we knew this because a lot of people in this in our newsroom had had experiences like that, and we also knew about it because the election was on a Tuesday. On Thursday night, I was coming back from an event at Yale Med School, and I got unbelievably sick. And I it was some kind of opportunistic virus. My temperature cranked up to about 104, and I was I couldn't get better. Uh, it just took a really really long time. Uh, I missed more than a week of shows. That has never happened to me in my life and missed all kinds of other important commitments. Uh, and I just couldn't quite turn myself around. So um, first of all, before I go any further, though, let me uh, introduce the guests here. One of the people who did trigger our interest in this was Blair Johnson, distinguished professor uh, in the Department of Psychological Sciences at the Institute for Collaboration on Health Intervention and Policy at UConn, and a senior editor with the uh, the scientific journal Social Science and Medicine. He's also an associate editor with the journalism Psychological Bulletin. Uh, Also with us is is Becky uh, Akabchuk. She is a uh, researcher at UConn, works with Blair Johnson. Um, she has her PhD in physiology and neurobiology, is an adjunct professor in the psychology department at UConn and Connecticut College, and also a yoga and fitness instructor. Uh, also with us is Dr. Michael Gray, a primary care physician and chair of the Department of Medicine at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. So I'm going to begin with you, Dr. Michael Gray, because in some ways I just sort of said something that's not very scientific. Like, I know this to be true. We don't really know exactly what stress does, I mean, we know there's a mind-body connection, but I mean, beyond that, it's pretty hard to say, well, yes, you get sick because you were under a lot of stress because of X, Y, and Z. No, I I think actually there's a lot of science, and Blair will probably talk about it, but um, between the body's immune system, uh, which is the thing that fights off uh, insults of various types, and uh, stress. So uh, the one I like to talk about a lot of people have familiarity with is you know, a couple that's been married 65 years, and one of those uh, members of the of the marriage uh, passes, uh, and then if you look at the rates of mortality in the following six months, it's uh, it's considerably higher than it was prior to that. Then it starts to come down. So there is this period of um, uh, increased vulnerability, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. following a substantial life stress. And it's not unique to you know marriages and deaths. It could be any number of events. I, I don't know, Blair, if that's Absolutely on target. So uh, these are acute episodes happening and they stress you and stress does, among other things, lowers immune function. And so with lowered immune function, your body has less chance to fight off anything that you happen to encounter then. So it's opportunistic. So that, that evening you came back from Yale. Uh, you, Colin, you, you ran into a bad pathogen when you were weak. Mm-hmm. And logically, it did knock you out. And then your immune system is still down and fighting this this nasty pathogen. And so it takes you a while to come back from that. So, um, Becky, there's even um, a little meme-ish kind of thing out there. It's hashtag Trump 10. And that's a reference to people putting on weight uh, as a result uh, of the election. Because one of the things we do when we're under this stress, whatever I, – I might even push at some point for a definition of stress. I don't know if it has one. But whatever it is, almost everything that we – sort of instinctively do is going to make it worse, right? We stress eat, uh, we stress drink, you know, our bodies kind of go into this kind of overdrive where rather than seizing upon some quieting response, we basically are unintentionally ratcheting up everything that's wrong with us. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a, a great acronym that I like to use for that called HALT, which is when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, that's when we tend to be weakest in terms of our, our willpower and for keeping up with our healthy behaviors. That's when we're more susceptible to falling back in addictions and things like that. So 
Absolutely. And just in terms of to um, jump back to what you were saying about the immune system, just um, some neat animal studies even add to that that show that, um, you know, it's difficult for the body to recover from a a wound after the body has been stressed. Um, And even studies that look at people responding to uh, vaccines, if they have a, if they're taking care of, uh, if they're caregivers of an Alzheimer's patient, for example, they're also going to have a, a less reaction to that um, vaccine as well. So there's a lot of studies that do show that the, that the immune system is significantly weakened from stress. But this is an unusual thing because, in fact, you know, the things that we ordinarily would know about uh, would be some of the things that Michael and Blair were talking about. You know, your your spouse dies, uh, you get divorced, uh, you lose your job, uh, moving. We we're constantly in, uh, informed just the sort of act of moving from one domicile to another uh, is one of the highest stressors. We don't really talk so much about sort of, you know, electoral, electoral cycles, you know, new presidents. They're just not anywhere on that list typically, although we know – some people really are experiencing that kind of stress. One of those people is John Stewart. I, Donald Day Trump, do declare by executive order that I, Donald J. Trump, am exhausting. <laughs> it has been 11 days, Stephen. 11 <laughs> days. <laughs> 11! The presidency is supposed to age the president, not the public. So, Michael, when you first started practicing medicine, people had stress. They had stress from some of the things that I was talking about before. There were other sources of stress. But there were also maybe a set of habits that allowed you to get away from stress. Your patients now and your immediate family members, for that matter, are on social media. Uh, they're watching uh, 24-hour cable news. Uh, you know, in a way, once again, some of the, the stressors or, or the subsidiary kind of um, tunnels that, that bring stress to us uh, are sort of bigger and faster and more ubiquitous. There's no question that technology has changed the atmospherics of our life in such a huge way. And I think you'd, you'll see this in some of the comments we might talk about later. Taking control of your life, even in small ways, is an excellent way to address things like stress. So it's like that old joke where, you know, you go to the doctor and you say, whenever I do this, you know, my knee hurts and what should I do, doctor? And the doctor says, well, don't do that. So unplugging from your phones or your TV, if that is a source particularly of, of uh, excessive uh, reaction to the uh, political situation, these are just these are common sense things that that people really need to think about doing. Going out for a walk, exercising, taking control of the things that you control are good ways to reassert the ownership of your life and can tamp things down. And and actually, you're, you're the gentleman that you spoke who spoke to early on. He talked about the relationships, his neighbors, his uh, his wife, the uh, importance of relationships and managing uh, stress whenever it comes along can't be, I think, overstated. But people are losing those relationships. Some people are. People get, as you perf- as you know well, you get defriended on Facebook, right? Not you, but... <laughs> Not me. I know people who have been defriended, but um, I, I mean, I have friends that probably are further to the left on the political spectrum than I am. One of them told me flat out in January that he was convinced that, that Trump was going to resign the day after he took the oath of office. That's how, how far his perception, I think, had been distorted by this. But the fact is we have a relationship that goes back 
30, 40, 50 years uh, that survived other uh, stresses uh, along the way. Although I will say one thing, there was a friend I was trying to get in touch with for the last couple of weeks who's much further along uh, to the left on the spectrum. And when he didn't respond to my text, I wonder if he was just mad at me. Mm -hmm. So I finally actually called him. As soon as I heard his voice, I knew there was nothing wrong. But I was telling my wife, Barbara, that never would have occurred to me in a prior, like a year ago or two years ago. It never would have occurred to me if I didn't hear from Dave that he was somehow upset with me. But that, that sort of that mindset sort of percolates in there. So I, I think it's, it is per pervasive, and I think it's uh, a sad commentary on the state of affairs. Blair, one of our younger uh, staff members was in here one day and talking about this situation and talking about some intergenerational conflict going on and around this political climate and in, in her own life. And she said, there just has never been anything like this before. And I said, well, I don't know. I lived through 68, 69, 70. And there were like bombs going off all over America and, you know, people were getting shot on college campuses. And it was like really a lot worse. <laughs> no, I mean, at least objectively, it was a lot worse. It, it seemed a lot worse. And, and, you know, I mean, my parents lived through the Depression and, and, and the war, the Great War. And obviously things have been worse. But I think for people who are younger, there's a way that they're experiencing it that was – you know, we had some people in here from um, the, the – what was called the Women's Land Army. These are the people who actually sort of got the crops out during World War II. And they were sort of saying, you know, yeah, we knew it was World War II and we had relatives who were here and relatives who were there. But it wasn't kind of pounding on our heads all the time, even though it was World War II. You and Becky deal with a lot of young people. I mean, is, are they – I don't know. Are they wired up to this in a different way? Well, it's all relative. <laughs> it's relative in many ways. And so when, you, when you've experienced more events, then you have a chance to take the new event into perspective of those old events. So, so those who've survived these stressors, Great Depressions, like the older said, and the shootings and things that you mentioned, are going to be perhaps better prepared when the new shock comes along. They've, they've already survived a bunch of stressors. So, so if you're naive to shock, of course, the, the stressor is going to be worse. And so this also highlights the nature of stress because stress isn't just stress objectively. The early studies on stress tried to get people to do checklists like how many of these events have you experienced in the last year? It's things like losing a spouse, breaking up with a girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, all the way down to getting colds and so on, a long range of things. And, uh, and, then, and people would check off a lot of those things. Some people suffer a lot in the span of a year, yet it was not correlated with the degree of physical or mental health. And so what, it's, more, it's more complicated than that. Pe people have perceptions about the stressors and they have different skills that they might have obtained that then become relevant for them to help cope with the stressor and make it manageable. I would actually hand it off to Becky to talk about what it's like on campus. I have talked to some of my students about that and heard some of their feedback. And they certainly are really concerned about health care. They're concerned about things that might affect them personally. And I think they're also concerned just about, you know, the, the state of the country as a whole. Um, but they're also pretty smart about it as a whole, at least the, the students that I've talked to, and knowing that, yeah, we live in this 24-hour news information time right now, and I need to restrict myself from that. So they are pretty good about setting limits for themselves, knowing that if they do check in and get these immediate alerts on their phone, that they're, they feel like it's just going to be overwhelming and just too much. 
Okay. So. Well, let's hear what stress sounds like uh, to somebody else. We actually asked – we set up a voicemail line. We asked people uh, to leave messages if they had a story about ways in which they could feel the stress of this election and the results of this election in some cases in their bodies and in their minds. Uh, here's one of the stories we got. Until President Trump got the GOP nomination, I was a happy, contented re- retiree enjoying my husband's and my retirement. Since the election, uh, starting in December, I started taking Clonopin, which is an anti-anxiety reliever. I started seeing a counselor every week. I've seen an acupuncturist for six weeks. And two weeks ago, I had my first appointment with a psychiatrist. I wake up every morning with the shivering inside my core. A good bit of the time, I feel as if I'm going to faint. I have no appetite. I have lost 18 pounds since Christmas. My energy level is the lowest it has been. I have to force myself to get up and do anything. But my counselor said I really must do that. Every day I must do something. So, I mean, that's kind of an alarming story. It's um, uh, Dr. Michael uh, Gray. It's sort of both somatic in in nature and psychological in nature. Um, That weight loss is not unusual. Lena Dunham has uh, talked uh, a couple of times about the fact that she just stopped eating uh, and and lost a a ton of weight as well. That can be sort of good news, except you never want to lose weight uh, in an uncontrolled fashion like that. So now you've got me. You know, I'm not asking you to diagnose this person on the air, but but we're hearing stories that are they sound like almost feedback loops. Like right, the whatever the stress you're feeling, it manifests itself in one way and it kind of doubles down. Uh, and, and keeps pulling you lower. Obviously, I think this person's experience is her experience. But one of the things that I do, you know, being a physician, is I like to look up, you know, what are the facts show, what's the research show, what do we really know? And what I've been as I sifted through a lot of information preparing for the session today, there are a couple of things that stood out for me. One is, I think there was an uptick in people. Um, with who are experiencing stress and it was coming out in different ways, whether it was, you know, anxiety, depression, insomnia, eating too much. But most of those, uh, uh, even looking at the American uh, Psychological Association, most of those patients are people who uh, had the experience and sort of moved back towards their norm. So, and I think that resiliency is something we under uh, value and sometimes under um, impress upon people that things will get better. The other thing is I think that there are people who are predisposed. They may have already, I have have an anecdote of a colleague of mine, not my own patient, but someone who had a history of trauma uh, and anxiety who had a severe exacerbation to the point of delusions right after the election, actually a Trump supporter. So we felt like everybody was keeping tabs on him. Uh, in his, uh, but this was someone whose uh, sort of pre-existing state, if you will, was, it was like gasoline poured on a fire. The other thing that I, th- I found an interesting study that came out of Harvard Medical School, interestingly enough, it's not a, a bastion of, of conservatism, but they did a study, a meta-study, um, looking at, uh, uh, f- I think, about 15,000 primary care physicians, and uh, I'm going to get this right, about 15 million office visits in the three months prior to the election and three months after the election. And they looked at diagnoses like anxiety, depression, insomnia, stress-related diagnoses are things that are often surrogates for stress. And they did, took it one step further. They compared highly red counties versus highly blue counties just to see, okay, what happened? And it turns out there wasn't a whole lot of difference looking at that macro level. So I'm not discounting individual stories. I think narrators are important and they're powerful. 
But when you take another le- step back, I think you also see a little bit of re- reassurance out there that uh, there aren't a lot of people who are going to primary care doctors and uh, decompensating. We haven't really seen it. I polled all of my uh, primary care doctors in the medical group at St. Francis and only got one story, which I, I mentioned kind of the, the little bit of a blip. So I think that's sort of reassuring. And the other part I found reassuring was the, the suggestions that people made consistently were the ones we talked about earlier in the show, which is unplug, you know, stop exposing yourself. If something is a trigger, don't expose yourself to that. Get out, take a walk, uh, call up a friend, go to church, you know, do something that involves a social interaction. And there was a consistency of recommendations that I think was also reassuring. And it's the kind of thing that I would talk about with my patients. Yeah, we're going to get a little bit more in the weeds about uh, some of those coping mechanisms uh, towards the end of the show. But so Blair, uh, you know, I mean, even uh, within the last week or so, uh, well, this one's from the American Psychological Association. Um, uh, Here's the first graph on the report of it. Uh, Facing one of the first, one of the most adversarial contests in recent history and daily coverage of the president election that dominates every form of mass media, 52% of American adults report that the 2016 election is a very or somewhat significant source of stress. Um, you know, we keep using this word stress and I'm realizing I'm not really sure whether I know what it means or whether it always means the same thing or whether it's just a matter of self-reporting. If I say that I feel stressed, that's how we know I feel stressed. Tell me a little bit more about how you use that word and understand it. Well, as I applied in my previous comments, there, there are objective stressors and then there are, there are stressors from inside your head, the way you view them. And so uh, you could go anywhere from exposure to environmental toxins, uh, radiation and poisons that might be out there to, you know, for that matter, UV rays from the sun uh, as a stressor in a physical sense. And, and they would kill you if you're exposed to them long enough. And most of us just act in ways that keep us protected enough so that they don't do that. Uh, of course, skin cancers as an exception and people who aren't careful are going to suffer the consequences in the long run. Um, they're not viewing that as enough of a stressor. There's just an example. I'll keep going with that even though it's not political. Um, so uh, so they perceive it probably probably a lot of young people like this view tanning as cool and something to do. And the more they do it, the more they're putting themselves at risk because UV exposure is cumulative. And so they're asking for trouble. It's what I call denial. So so it's actually a stressor, but in this case, they're they're denying that it matters in any kind of long-term way. And they actually the opposite. They're valuing it in the short run to make them look better, what they think will make them look better. So it's kind of a negative. This is an example of negative social networking because they're trying to look cool to the other peer group, the rest of the peer group. Um, I'm not sure if that fully answers your question. I mean, a stressor could be almost anything to anyone. It just depends whether it's aversive to that person. So now we're back to the perceptual side of it. And, and so things, things that are noxious to a person, things that upset a person, political events that go the wrong way, maybe even sometimes political events that go the way a voter wants it to could be stressful because now they've got to deal with the reality of the, their candidate in that office and thinking about all the things that they did not encounter, think about before the election are going to be part of the equation too. So it's easy to understand why you wouldn't necessarily see ideological differences in reactions to the election because there are so many wrinkles to it. There are so many ways to get anxious about it Um, and and it's highly individual. And then it's also like we've already been implying in this discussion buffered by the social networks where you are. And I think on your program, Colin, you've had people talking about ideology, politics, identity politics. 
And with social media, it's ever easier just to hang out with the people who think exactly like you without exposing yourself to the people who think differently. And that's part of – so that cushions you. That, that's a buffer for you if you're in that group. It's a way of getting solidarity. But the, the risk is that you're missing part of reality that might be important. Uh, we'll take a break. When we come back, first thing you'll hear are some more of those voices of stress. You're listening to a show that we did in early April of this year uh, when people started to report that they were feeling stress from the election and from the contentiousness uh, of the country. Um, We think it's worth running again, partly because, yeah, this was a very stressful week or so. The events of Charlottesville may have kind of re-triggered some people's senses that this country isn't getting along. It's not an easy place to be in right now. So uh, we do advise you, though, after you listen to this show, the one takeaway, I said this earlier, the one takeaway is take good care of yourself. Make sure you're going for walks, you know, doing some kind of exercise, enjoying music and enjoying your friends because that's what it's all about, right? You don't want to get sick from this stuff. Anyway, back to the show. I feel like I'm getting pelted every single day with rocks because it just keeps coming and coming. It's relentless. I'm disappointed in people that thought that Trump would be a good president. What they expected of him, I have no idea. I was very, very, very upset. I had to call my son and talk to him, and he talked me down. And, uh, of course, now he has a different idea. He's pretty stressed himself about this. Uh, There's some uh, more voices uh, from our voicemail project talking about how it felt after the election. We're talking today about people who feel as though uh, they got physically ill um, or psychologically ill or had some real, real steep uh, increase uh, in personal stress as a result of not just the election results but the election season, uh, the unusually heated climate uh, of that season. Joining me in studio are Blair Johnson, distinguished professor in the Department of uh, Psychological Science at the Institute for Collaboration on Health Intervention and Policy at UConn and a senior editor with the scientific journal Social Science and Medicine, also associate editor with the journal Psychological Bulletin. Uh, also, uh, Rebecca Ab- I'm going to get this right one time. Re- Rebecca Akab... Ak- See, I've, I've got a mental block about it. Akabchuk. It's not that hard a name to say, but I've got a mental block. Works with Blair Johnson uh, as a researcher at UConn. Uh, she in- obtained her PhD in physiology and neurobiology and adjunct professor in, in the psychology department at UConn. UConn and Connecticut College, also a yoga and fitness instructor, and Michael Gray, uh, Dr. Michael Gray, primary care physician and chair at the Department of Medicine at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center across the street. All right, I did it. Maybe we should begin by saying um, that when it comes to stress and the ways that stress manifests in the body, we're not all hitting off the same T's, so to speak. I mean, everybody's at a different uh, place in in that continuum. And and so, uh, Dr. Michael Gray, I mean, there are certain parts of the body or certain systems of the body that uh, at least uh, re- react to chronic stress in very particular ways. So, I mean, if, if you are experiencing chronic stress, psychological stress, the feeling that you are under stress, which systems of the body, which, I mean, I happen to have kind of a volatile blood pressure, so I know about that one already. Are there some other ones that people need to think about a bit? 
Well, actually, there's almost no system that isn't affected in some ways by chronic stress. So uh, you've already talked a little bit about blood pressure, but other cardiovascular risks, strokes, heart attacks, high blood pressure. People talk about uh, weight gain. It's not just eating more, but there's impacts on cortisol levels in your body, insulin levels in your body that can also uh, pack on the pounds. People often talk about, you know, having kind of a weak stomach or a weak digestive system. Uh, so people do have uh, upset stomachs or um, go to the bathroom more or less depending on the stress. The only, only thing I can't think of in terms of psychological stress is the skin, but I can almost think of an example with almost every other part of the body. So I'll have to turn to my physiology scientist <laughs> colleagues here uh, if the skin is in the mix. But but really almost no. Rosacea, your rosacea yeah. is going to get worse, <laughs> right? Yeah. A lot of times people end up having flare-ups of even just acne or any other existing condition. You'll see a flare-up during times of stress for sure. Right. So, so people have rheumatic conditions or uh, – Maybe psoriasis or um, lupus uh, under stress may may notice flaring of their symptoms. Great. We know also, Blair, I mean, the numbers tell us a certain kind of story just about what stress does and what sort of social and political stress does. I mean, this election and its results are new, but studying this isn't all that new. I was at the TEDMED conference last December. The most listened to speech, the speech that people got the most excited about, uh, was a researcher just talking about the stress of being black in America. And when you control for every other variable, you know, when you take, and I think he had in particular studied black graduates from Yale University over a period of time, but then controlled for everything else, you know, in income, blah, blah, you name it, you know, stabilized the whole thing out. They didn't live as long, you know, they just didn't live as long. And it really seemed as though they didn't live as long because being black imposes some level of stress, you know, that acts on all those systems that, that Dr. Gray was talking about. I don't know if you want to elaborate on stuff well, like that. I, I don't know that particular study, but it's consistent with a host of others. And as an editor, I've accepted some pieces that are, that are similar to those, those results. And it wouldn't just be racial minority status that would matter. I mean, uh, sexual minority status. I mean, almost any stigmatized identity, if you're in a minority that has that stigma attached to it, you're going to suffer chronic stress related to it. Um, you're, well, unless you develop really good coping skills. And even those, like this case you just mentioned, the study, these Yale grads not doing as well as their equally skilled white counterparts, that's an example of cumulative problems. And there, there are studies of colleagues in the, in the Department of Psychology, Psychological Sciences at UConn, who, uh, who are studying on a longitudinal way uh, a cohort of African Americans and, and showing that like experiences of uh, early, early problems in relation to discrimination causing long-term effects, controlling everything else again. So I'm just hypothesizing here, but the Yale sample may well have experienced discrimination at a vulnerable age. Mm -hmm. And then that comes back later. It, it sticks with you, even though you develop a lot of ways to cope. It's a vulnerability issue. And that, that's one of the things about the stress hypothesis. In these analyses of political stress, you would expect the vulnerable groups to suffer the worst. Mm -hmm. The ones that are that don't have the resources available to cope. And Those. do we do we know anything about what happens when you're a um, political minority? I mean, in other words, that you're one of five Democrats in an otherwise all Republican town, or the obverse of that. Um, do we know anything about what that does to people? Well, I'm sure there's a body of evidence out there, but this isn't the kind of work that I tend to see at my journal, so I, I can't really speak to it. 
All right. We do have a lot of calls uh, coming in here, uh, and uh, we're going to try to grab a few of them. Although before we do that, Becky, we apparently also do know uh, that there's almost an epigenetic quality to all this, right? That kids under a lot of stress will start to experience genetic changes. Can you say anything about that? Sure, absolutely. Um, a big line that you hear in the research these days is how how stress and discrimination or adverse childhood experiences, how they all get under the skin. So you hear that line a lot. And what they mean by get under the skin is how does that really affect somebody on a biological level in the long term? And one of those is through epigenetic changes. So changes in, in the DNA and also through changes in the cells at the cellular level in terms of like the telomere length. And really, that's just a sign of early aging at the cellular level, besides all of the other changes to the, to the systems that we mentioned before. All right. So don't watch cable news at night. That's what I'm telling you right now. All right. Here's uh, Karen. She's calling from somewhere on the road. Hi, Karen. You're on the air. Hi, thanks, Colin. Um, listening, enjoying your show. I'm driving along to Massachusetts. Um, and I just wanted to weigh in on the idea of um, the extraordinary nature of these, these particular times. I, too, live through the 60s. I understand, you know, situations that are beyond our control and how um, we have to all find our own way of coping with stress, and that's important. But there is something different in the air right now in terms of the level of leadership and toxicity that's coming from leaders. All right. So work with children and elderly people. Understand people need to be taken care of, not to be rejected at the borders and rejected in school and bullied on the playground. All right, Karen, your, your connection's a little muddy. I'm having a, a little trouble hearing you. And if I'm having trouble with headphones in a studio, I'm guessing the listeners can't hear you all that well. Although I think one thing that she's saying and I don't know which panelist even asked this about, but if I understood correctly what she was saying, you know, maybe one of the reasons that this particular cycle uh, has been so uh, stressful for people is that um, they look to leaders to, to say, I'm going to take care of you. You're, you're going to be taken care of. Things are going to be okay. Um, and so much of the election was about how bad everything is. And then some of the election results suggested, well, maybe you're not going to be taken care of all that well, that maybe the sources that help us stabilize our moods a little bit uh, are, are the ones that specifically eroded during this election cycle. All right, you're nodding. That means you have to talk. Okay. So basically, fundamentally, people need control over things that are happening in, in their lives. And, and so the, the caller has, point, has put a finger on something that probably does distress a lot of people. Um, things were much more regular under the Obama administration. For most people, at least, you, you had a good idea how reality was going to be the next day. And now the Trump administration comes out and it's a different bizarre thing, seemingly bizarre thing, at least to some of us. Uh, so so the, it makes sense that people would start to see less control in those circumstances. And again, that's going to contribute to perceived stress levels. So uh, yeah, so, and then the other thing I would add to it is just um, people do need leadership and they, they need people to <laughs> – because they don't always know how to act. And, and they need leaders that will uh, at their best be good models for behavior. These kinds of things lower stress levels. So, so this kind of reaction I, I think is um, understandable. All right. We're going to take a break. But before we do – oh, no. I, you're right. OK. You want to play music? Uh, play music now. We'll uh, play this clip when we get back. Uh, we, did, uh, we do have a lot more things that are uh, collected on our voicemail. So we'll uh, play those in our final segment here. We're talking about the ways in which this election caused people to feel as though they were getting either physically or mentally sick. And we'll be back after this. Stressed out like you saw MC. I really know how it feels to be. 
The night that it happened, I felt like I was falling down a rabbit hole, and I couldn't even watch the election results come in. I had to come upstairs and play solitaire on my computer. For about a week, I felt like I'd lost my mother or something worse. It's just this overwhelming sense of, of hopelessness and anger all the time. I've never felt so much rage at anything, ever. Stress, stress. There you go. Stress. That's what we've been talking about today, the ways in which the election uh, and perhaps the result of the election uh, made people feel a certain kind of stress that made them feel maybe a certain kind of sick. I have to thank a whole bunch of people here. Betsy Kaplan has been working long and hard uh, on this particular show. Uh, we got the idea for it, I, you know, I think maybe like months ago. In fact, one of uh, an email from Blair, I think, was what got us going down this road. But this has involved collecting a little bit more audio, as you can hear, than usual and meeting Tom at Starbucks and all kinds of stuff. So, But we have heard some amazing stories and she's done some very special work on this. Thanks also uh, to Jonathan McNichol who's running the board today. So thanks to everybody and uh, we're going to end here with uh, some conversations about what you can do about all this. But the first thing we have to do before that, we all I sort of wondered whether we should even play this or not. It is so sad. Uh, but one of the people who called our voicemail line um, wanted to tell us, well, a, a very, very sad story. I feel stressed daily about what's happening with the Trump administration. My stomach churns when I hear a new statement that is out of line for a president. I also had a daughter, had a daughter, unfortunately, who was adopted from China, and she had a lot of anxiety, and she also was fighting a mental illness, and she took her life on January 16th, one of the things that contributed to her anxiety was what she heard from President Trump. She was very sensitive. Um, as I say, we almost didn't play it. But on the other hand, that call is kind of why we did the show too. People have experienced uh, unusual levels of pain and pain they didn't know how to cope with. We're going to talk about that. How do you cope uh, with that kind of stress and that kind of pain? And we've, uh, Becky, we've already kind of hinted at some of the answers here. And uh, Michael's uh, talked a bunch of times about unplugging. But uh, maybe we can talk a little bit more about this. As people uh, get into these, these kinds of loops or downward spirals uh, of stress that seems to be uh, caused by the election and maybe exacerbated by constant attachment to social media uh, and television news. I mean, what, what kinds of, what are some good coping strategies? Sure. Well, one of them that I like to, to advocate for is uh, doing random acts of kindness for other people because that actually reduces the stress in the person performing the act. And we could all use more of those. And uh, when you think about what compassion really is. So compassion is feeling empathy, but it's also based on stress, too. So stress is a component of compassion and action, too. So putting that together, stress, empathy, and action, we're moved to feel compassion. Um, so really finding people to connect with and feeling part of um, a larger group than yourself that is really in support of a cause and and using that stress for good. Um, and I think it also highlights just the, the importance of really picking up some good long-term habits. Uh, of course, I'm going to propose yoga and meditation mm. for that because that's a, an important thing for me personally. Um, but whatever it is for you, 
But, you know, I tell my yoga students all the time that, you know, if we're if we're doing a difficult, challenging yoga pose, I'll tell them, you know, we're practicing staying calm in a in a stressful situation and, you know, really building up that resistance in this nice, safe environment here on your mat and learning how to work with your breath and learning how the breath is really like this key into the internal mechanisms of your body and learning how to use that over time and really practicing that. Yeah, not too stressful though. I'm hearing a little in a forest come into that. You're making me nervous. Uh, Blair, uh, anything that is kind of zen, right? Anything yeah. that uh, requires a certain level of con- uh, well, concentration uh, for you? I think I believe it's darts. Yeah, I like to throw darts, and uh, it's a wonderful mindfulness activity, and that's in the category of yoga meditation kind of thing too. I mean, things that distract you. I mean, the thing about stress is that it's, it, and especially we're talking about a chronic stressor here, it's just always out there. It's always happening. So if you're always obsessed about it, then it's like raging anxiety, and it's going. it's got nowhere to go. So these things like Becky was just listening, give the anxiety a place to go. And, and the other part is just, just breaking the loop in your head of the constant obsessive thoughts about the election. So you, now when you try the mindfulness task, I, I, I use it as a journal editor because I have some long, dreary days where I end up with the details of previous manuscripts in my head while I'm trying to process a new one. A mindfulness task, task like throwing darts is enough to break that up. Just three good throws and I can go back and my mind is clear again. Um, so, And you can make anything into a mindfulness activity. I mean, having a cup of tea or, I don't know, clipping your nails or, you know. Taking a mini vacation. Or a maxi vacation. Go to a yard uh, goats game. So um, – Michael, one way in which medicine has changed during the era in which you've practiced it is that uh, these days if I go over to St. Francis Hospital or any major hospital, I can walk, uh, in this case in St. Francis, sort of towards the back of the building and there's an alternative medicine center where I can uh, be introduced to some of the stuff that Becky's talking about, right? That didn't exist probably when you were a, a young intern or resident. Uh, and, and it's – it's probably worth talking about because the the things that we're talking about right now they're not just one system right they're this they're this orchestra of neurochemicals uh, desirable neurochemicals and undesirable neurochemicals and and as you were saying before tied into virtually every possible physical system in a way there's not going to be um, one magic bullet that knocks the whole thing out. I agree with that. Uh, you know, I think that uh, when I trained. Most of that would have been considered outside the realm of traditional medicine. But one nice thing about medicine is that it's constantly looking at new research and new ways of looking at things. And as the data has collected, uh, healthcare institutions have adapted. I, I'd like to believe it's not really sort of fad driven, but driven by the fact that there's real science out there that supports that. And, and actually, there's a whole literature around uh, spirituality and people who are very uh, religious and use prayer uh, to do the same kind of mindfulness that people are talking about. There are lots of ways to to take back some ownership of it. And I was going to push back a little bit on on the notion of kind of being taken care of because I think really it can be a thin uh, line from being taken care of and so you, you, you don't have anything that you can do mm-hmm. and starting to think like you're a victim. You know, if it's, it's your genetics or it's, it's your parents or it's the school or it's the president. 
But that is usually counterproductive thinking uh, in the, in the long term. Mm. So whatever it is for you to sort of regain some sense of control, uh, mm. whether it's physical stuff for your body or whether it's connecting with people who uh, uh, support you and your points of view. All those things are positive steps. My, my wife likes to say you can't undo things that have happened in your life, but you can outdo things. Mm. And, and I think we, we should spend more time working with people's own innate resiliency, uh, which may be a tiny kernel. I, I have this con- discussion with my patients all the time. Tiny little steps forward for some people is like moving a mountain. Yeah. I want to describe a very quick call here. We're almost out of time. Sadie, we've only got about 30 or 40 seconds left, but I think uh, you can build right on to what uh, Michael's saying right now. What did you do? I'm a millennial, and I was not a Trump supporter. I was obviously disheartened and slightly angered, but that made me be more motivated, and it helped me run more and exercise more and have a better outlook. It made me reevaluate where I wanted to go and... Yeah, no, I, that's not not counter to what we're saying at all, and it b- builds very nicely under what Michael's saying. I just want to say very quickly, St. Francis, last time I checked, that they have this integrative medicine center where they have a course uh, that you can take about how to sort of reduce all this stress. And I always want to take it, and I always look at the schedule, and I go, no, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I don't have time to take that course. Dr. Mueller will see you one-on-one. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's like the saddest thing that I'm too busy to take the course where I reduce my stress. Exactly, yeah. I'll wind up in a lab somewhere. All right. Well, thanks very much to all of you. Uh, You've been great guests, and thanks to Betsy as well. We'll be back tomorrow. We just keep doing shows. That's why I can't take the stress course.